You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Before we dive in this morning, I want to share um, just a few more things with you that uh, we are incredibly excited about as we move into this new year. Um, One of those is that um, we finished last year um, with our giving um, exceeding our budget. And um, Reed and I talked about this last week. There are probably about 7 to 8% of churches out there that ever do that. Um, but we finished ahead of what we said we needed, uh, finished with our giving ahead of our spending. And uh, that is because of the Lord's faithfulness and your faithfulness. And so I say thank you. Um, but also beyond that, um, we cannot say this with absolute certainty, but we're pretty confident that when the money over in the safe gets counted, we will have given more than $40,000 toward the gift this Christmas. And so that is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Um, way to go. Um, that, that's incredible. We begin this year saying we very, very much believe in what the Lord has called us to do. Um, we just launched our new website. Uh, If you go to it and you've been here at the Brook for any length of time, you may think this looks a whole lot like the old website. It looks like it, um, but it is a whole lot more friendly. And along with that, um, today we begin for the very, very first time live streaming this sermon. Um, Ironically, my sick wife gets to be at home and watch it for the first time. So love you, honey. Um, we, we are beginning the new year with baptism. Can't ask for anything better than that. We are about to begin presenting to you and affirming our first deacon candidates here at the Brook. Um, the Lord is doing some incredibly exciting things, and we are ready for this year. So part of that is to tell you, two, three years ago at least, um, I began wrestling with <clears throat> preaching through Romans. Um, beginning to feel like the Lord was saying, it's time that you go through this as a church. And, you know, you may wonder, okay, well, it's the big deal. Well, um, this is one of the most challenging and demanding books of the New Testament and moreover the Bible. Um, And it's not just challenging and demanding if you're going to preach it. It's challenging and demanding if you read it. And so it asks much of us. But the depth and the reward is also very rich because this is one of the most liberating and encouraging letters that we find in the New Testament. And so throughout the course of this year in four or five different sections, uh, we're going to walk through it together. Um, As I said, this is one of the most powerful and influential books or letters ever written. And I want to give you a few examples of why I can make that statement Um, St. Augustine uh, came to conviction of his sin and to salvation after reading Romans. Martin Luther recovered the doctrine of salvation by faith after reading Romans, and that began what you and I know of as the Protestant Reformation, which has a great deal of influence on why we're even here as a church. Um, John Wesley, the famous minister and hymn writer, said his heart was strangely warmed within him in his conversion upon reading the book of Romans. And John Bunyan was inspired by reading Romans while he was in jail um, to write Pilgrim's Progress. And if you don't know what Pilgrim's Progress is, 
um, in contrast to what my father said it was in a book report in high school. Um, It is not about the pilgrims advancing in their relationship with the Indians and settling in America. Um, It's about, it's an allegory about a man named Christian and his walk in his faith. So this is just a small example of um, very, very uh, significant Christians who came to faith through reading the book of Romans. Romans powerfully addresses some of the fundamental themes and doctrines of our faith. Justification by faith, uh, the abounding grace and mercy that we have in God, um, the victory that we have over sin through the Spirit, the nature of our sanctification, the calling of God on His people into the world. Um, Some would say that this letter is the hallmark of all of Paul's letters. Whether that's true or false, you can begin making that argument from the very opening. And that's where we're going to start today. So if you will join me, um, we're going to begin in the intro. And speaking of the intro, um, it is longer and more theological and even more personal than most of the introductions that Paul writes. And I think the reason for that is Paul knows um, that the intro is important because of the significance of what he's going to say in this letter, but also because Paul has not met these people. When Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus or to the church in Philippi, he knows those people intimately well. Paul has not met the Romans. They have certainly heard of him, but they don't know him yet. So look with me in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Deep breath. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I failed to mention that the introduction to Romans is also possibly one of the longest run-on sentences ever written. Um, A teacher asked her second grade class to write an essay about themselves. So one of the second graders submitted an essay entitled, My Face. I want to read it to you. He or she wrote, My face has two brown eyes. It has a nose and two cheeks and two ears and a mouth. I like my face. I'm glad my face is just like it is. It's not bad. It's not good, but just right. I find that to be perfect. And here's why. First of all, this is a second grader with at least more self-awareness than half the adults I know. This is what I got. But it's also a second grader with enough contentment to say, this is what I got, and I'm okay with it. It's not bad, it's not good, but it's what I've been given. 
And the reason I shared that with you is because I find that to be the same heart with which Paul opens this letter. Friends who I have not met yet before, this is who I am, this is what God has called me to do, and this is why I am writing you. I just want to pour out my heart to you. And in doing that, Paul speaks to several important details right here in these first seven verses in this introduction. And I want to hit them and then go back and walk through them and unpack them together. In, in these first seven verses, Paul addresses his view of himself. He addresses his view of Christ and the gospel and the preaching of it. Then Paul addresses his commission, the commission on his life to do just that, to preach the good news of Christ. And then Paul finishes by addressing his view of the Roman believers and as a result, all believers. So let's start where Paul does, Paul's view of himself. Look back at verse 1 with me. He begins this letter by saying, this is Paul. And the first thing that he says is, a servant of Christ Jesus. The word that he uses here is actually bond servant. And in the Greek, it's a word doulos. Paul says, I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Um, if you have any familiarity with Paul's letters, with the New Testament, then think about how many different ways Paul could have introduced himself or opened this letter. Hey, this is Paul. You may have heard of me. This is Paul, famous church planter. This is Paul, uh, resident theologian, radical. I mean, Paul could have talked about himself all kinds of ways in the present. Or he could have talked about himself thinking about the past. Hey, this is the Apostle Paul. You may have heard of me. I was a former mob boss, used to kill Christians. He could have opened this up all kinds of ways. But what does he do? He doesn't just present himself as a humble servant. You can't just say that, can you? I mean, there's all things that, kind of things that you and I can say about ourselves to put up a front or a facade. Servant isn't really one of them. Hey, I'm a humble servant. It doesn't work. The reason Paul's able to present himself as a bond servant of Christ is because that's what he is. His life has been completely surrendered and yielded to the person of Jesus. And then Paul goes on and he says, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What does it mean to be set apart? Well, let's say that one of you decided, I need new glasses. Got to have some new glasses to drink out of. So you go out and you buy a set of, you know, 12 new glasses and you got to have something to drink out of every night at dinner. So you take, let's say, six of them and say, these are going to be the everyday dinner glasses. But these other six, we're going to take these and set them aside. We're going to put them in the fancy cabinet. Kids don't mess with the fancy glasses. We get those out when we have special occasions and friends come over. We set those apart. Paul says, God has set me apart for a special purpose. What is it? For the preaching of the good news. Paul is saying, this is the reason that I'm still alive. God could have just struck me dead that day on the road to Damascus and said, I'm done with you. But he didn't. He saved me for a reason. And this is it. This is the reason why I'm still here, what God has put me here to do. You read this introduction and you can hear Paul saying, 
My calling is from Christ. My strength is from Christ. My message is not only from Christ, it is Christ. Jesus saved me. Jesus called me. Jesus has set me apart. And now Jesus has sent me. Paul says, this is what is of first and utmost importance. What Christ did to me. What Christ did for me. What Christ has done in me and through me. Not what I've done. That's the heart of Paul here. This is what is of utmost importance. So now Paul moves from his view of himself to his view of Christ. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. Look at verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. Okay, It was foreshadowed in and through the prophets, declared throughout the scriptures. I, I want to affirm to you how the Lord works very, very often. Um, Lee, Lee, when he is preparing for what we do in here on Sunday mornings, Lee knows the scriptures that I'm preaching or Reed's preaching or Chip's preaching, and he knows the theme of where we're going, and that's about it. The next place I'm going to take you in my sermon here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Lee took us just 10, 15 minutes ago during our time of worship. That's the Lord saying we obviously need to hear this. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead. All of this is according to the scriptures. All of it is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Paul addresses the nature of Christ. He stresses the declaration of not only Christ's humanity, but his divinity, and that you can't separate the two. You can't remove one from the other. First, he says... Um, that he's the son of man, that he's a descendant of David. And you know, if you read the genealogy that's found in the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, you don't just go back to David, you go all the way back to Abraham. And you see from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way down through King David and Solomon, all the way down to this young man named Joseph in a town called Nazareth. That's how God brought his son into the world. He is a descendant of David, the son of man, but he's also the son of God. He's the firstborn among the dead. That's how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians, because Jesus is the only one to have raised himself from the dead. So Paul is saying, this is who Christ is. And now he moves into, and this is what he has done. This is what he has done. Look at Paul's view of his 
commission. Look at verse 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul begins that with the word we. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Douglas Moo is a New Testament professor and theologian at Wheaton University in Chicago. Um, He wrote the NIV Life Application Commentary on the Book of Romans. I quoted him in my article about this sermon series that hopefully you saw this past week. I want to quote him again this morning and what he says about this grace that we've received. Listen to this. When we serve the Lord in the church, we do what we have no right to do on our own. We speak in God's name. We reach out with his love. We lead his people. Only because God both calls us to minister and gives us the grace to do it can we accomplish anything worthwhile. Jesus has commissioned Paul, empowered Paul, filled Paul, sent Paul. But notice, Paul very intentionally starts with the word we. We have received this grace and apostleship. So we understand that Jesus has commissioned us. Jesus has equipped us, empowered us, filled us, sent us. And this leads to Paul sharing his view of the Roman believers and as a result, us. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It may not sound like it at first reading or on the surface, but what Paul says right there is incredibly audacious. He calls the Roman believers called and loved by God. Why does this matter? Well, remember, this is Rome. This is Rome. Right at this moment, okay, when Paul's writing this letter... This is considered the center of the world. It's the epicenter of just about everything. It's the epicenter of academics, of economics. Uh, Anything you can think of, it thrives, it's birthed from Rome, including what most would consider to be the spiritual world. Because also remember that Rome is the kingdom of Caesar. And while Caesar, whichever Caesar happens to be reigning, while Caesar may believe in the gods, Caesar also believes himself to somewhat be a god. Believes that there is a level of divinity that he uh, encapsulates. And so we need to understand this because when you live in the kingdom of the Caesars, that also means that you live in a kingdom that has peasants and nobodies. As much as you or I, at different stages of our life, may love or hate or whatever the person that we as a country have put in office, the fact is we live somewhere where we have the liberty and the freedom to vote on one of our peers to serve and lead us. 
we don't even begin to understand what it would be like to live somewhere where we are ruled over. This is the kingdom of the Caesars. This is where many, many, many people are peasants and nobodies. Paul is writing this very, very small band of believers who are most likely also peasants and nobodies. And he is saying to them, you matter to God. You don't get to say that, do you? I mean, you got to run that through Caesar first. In the kingdom of Rome, you don't just say that kind of a thing. Roman culture and thought in that day and time would have laughed right in the face of what Paul is saying here to this band of Christians. But thankfully, Paul doesn't care about what Rome thinks. Paul cares about what God thinks. And he says here to them and to us, you matter to God. You are called by God. You are loved by God. So what does this mean for us? On the one hand, I would say, don't get caught in this thing where every time that you sit down to read your Bible, you have to say, okay, so what's this saying to me? Maybe it's not saying anything to you or about you. Maybe it's just telling you, this is who God is. Rest in it. This, however, is saying something to us. You and I live in a day of Heavy, heavy relativism. We live in a day right now where the thought is, if it's true for you, then it's your truth. I don't know who invented that little statement that's kind of going around and Oprah loves to, to toss out there. Speak your truth. Own your truth. That's hogwash. You and I don't get to determine what the truth is. This is why we've been given the truth to stand and build our lives upon. But we live in a day that says, figure out what it is you think, feel, and, and just go with that. Unless, of course, what you think and feel is the Bible, then there's usually some qualms about it. But here's why this matters to us, friends. Today, no matter how it appears, or what anybody thinks, or how any of us feel, Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. And unless we know this and believe this with all of our heart, we are going to be overwhelmed by the apparent bigness of everything going on around us. Let me say this again in English. Unless you and I rest in the sovereignty of God, and that in God's sovereignty, He has placed all authority in heaven and on earth with His Son, and that He has sent His Spirit to bring that power and that authority into our lives, unless you and I learn to rest and believe in that, we will be overwhelmed by what we see and feel and believe is going on in the world around us. And it won't take a whole lot. Because there's a lot going on. And how we view God, and as a result, how we view ourselves, is going to dictate how we look at everything else in life and in this world. 
And if we look at life in the absence of the truth that Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and that he says to us, his disciples, I am giving you all authority in heaven and on earth to go and make disciples. If we don't rest in that, if we don't live by that, we will begin to think that Christianity, that our faith is a little bit more insignificant. But we know the truth, that the only hope that we have in this world is in Christ. And that he has given us his word, which will not fade, which will stand forever to build our lives on. So I want to exhort you and encourage you this morning. Set your mind on the magnificence of Jesus Christ. Set your mind on the magnificence of Christ as Lord of the universe and on the power and wisdom of God the Father who created all of this and plans all of this and manages all this and ordains all of this. And why does he do this? He does it precisely for the building of his church, his people, And what does Paul say here? Why does he do this? He does this, how? By bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul, in this little bitty introduction, he tells us what and why and how. This is what God is going to do. This is how he's going to do it. This is why he's going to do it. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Church, that is our gospel calling. To bring the glory of God, to advance the kingdom of God for the sake of his name among the nations. As the people of God, Saved by the death and resurrection of the Son of God. Drawn, filled, sanctified by the power of the Spirit of God. We are sent out for the sake of His name among the nations. Turn with me for just a second to 2 Corinthians. Paul says this very, very powerfully here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Stop there for a minute and and I want to stress this. Do you understand what Paul is saying right there? Paul is saying because of what Christ has done, because he has came, because he lived and died and rose from the dead, and because he has brought us new life, and because we know that God desires that no one would perish, 
Paul is saying that you and I, we can no longer look at anyone the same. Not the jerk that cut me off in traffic, not the lady who rung up my groceries, not the person that works in the cubicle next to me. No one. I can no longer look at anyone according to the flesh. But we do, don't we? We do, don't we? Maybe this morning, this is a moment that corporately we ought to repent. God, help us to stop regarding anyone according to the flesh. Because we have been so guilty of it. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul says here very wisely, we don't think about Christ that way any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, as we close, let's go back for just a moment here to those two key words that Paul used to describe the Roman Christians called and loved by God. Called and loved by God. This is what makes us Christians. That God has called us and we have responded. That we have been loved by God and we have chosen to receive that love. And we have said, God, now pour that love back out of me. This is what we should know about ourselves more than anything else. There's nothing more important than you and I to know than who we are in Christ. And it's when we rest in this knowledge that we will walk in the grace and peace that we find in him. That's why Paul closes this introduction. And I will close this morning by saying to you, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we ask you to empty us of ourselves, that we might be filled by you. Lord, we ask you to give us humility. But Lord, at the same time, we, we ask you to fill us with contentment in knowing that as we declared earlier, all that we need and all that we are and all that we could hope for is found in you. Lord, we pray this morning that where there is hurt, you would bring comfort. Lord, we know that many of our brothers and sisters 
are in desperate need of your healing. And Lord, we ask you in your grace and mercy to pour that out. Father, I pray this morning that no one, no one would be trying to carry the burdens of this life alone. Father, you would empty us, empty us of ourselves that we would be willing to walk with one another and carry one another's burdens. Lord, we thank you today for your grace. Your grace and peace. Would you pour it out over us today, Lord? Lord Jesus, in these moments, we exalt you, we worship you, we lift you up. We lay our lives at your feet. Let's stand together and continue to worship. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.